Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast. My name is Natalie Nahai, and in this second series, I'll be exploring our relationship with the living environment. These 10 intimate conversations will touch upon everything from psychology, sustainability, and human behavior, to political and economic systems, and the narratives we inhabit to make meaning of our place in this world. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast. As some of you may know, last year in the UK, we faced government inaction at the incontrovertible evidence of climate breakdown. And 94 British academics issued an open letter calling for a citizens' assembly to work with scientists to urgently develop a credible plan for the rapid total decarbonisation of our economy. In October 2018, Extinction Rebellion was born, launched by Roger Hallam, Gail Bradbrook, Simon Bramwell and other activists from the campaign group Rising Up. Their aim was to communicate with and apply pressure to our government to take the necessary action to avert climate breakdown, halt biodiversity loss and minimise the risk of human extinction and ecological collapse. In November last year, various acts of civil disobedience took place across London, with a large number of activists, both young and old, pledging to risk arrest and imprisonment in order to make their voices heard. Originally conceived as a socio-political group in the UK, in only a brief space of time, Extinction Rebellion has become a global movement, attracting the support of diverse groups of people from around the world. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Liam Geary-Bolt, a creative actions coordinator at Extinction Rebellion, about why this movement is necessary, what progress has been made, and what vision of the world it hopes to achieve. So, uh, Liam, thank you very much for joining me in what is a very busy schedule, I'm sure, today. Thank you so much for having me. So you previously worked uh, with Rising Up, which is the founding group behind Extinction Rebellion. Can you tell us a little bit about this and what moves you to take an active role in these current issues? Yeah, so um, I've been involved in kind of creative campaigning on a whole range of issues around like health and the NHS and around housing in my um, local area in London, in Lewisham and also around ending the arms trade in the UK. But um, about four years ago now, there was a massive mobilization to get people um, from a whole range of issues to be interested in climate and mobilize around the Paris um, UN climate conference, COP21. Mm. Um, And as part of that mobilization, I went to Paris and I'd done some things around the climate before that, But that was kind of the moment where I really realized if we don't move on this issue, all the other kind of things that I'm interested in improving in the world will kind of be futile if we don't have a future um, world to have those like live those improved lives and live that society into. So I kind of switched my focus there and I was looking at um, helping groups look at how oppression in the in the movement will kind of limit its functioning like if we don't have young people central to this movement um that will limit it and now 
a few years later, we've seen how much an impact the school strikes can have mm. if we don't think about racism and climate justice. How will this movement be limited if we don't have women's voices in the centres? Um, so that was my way in. And then I thought, how can I get people in London um, interested in the climate? And I looked for something about air pollution. And the thing I found was a group called Stop Killing Londoners, which was um, a campaign run by Rising Up around air pollution in London. And they took to the streets and did roadblocks um, as a way of raising attention to the issue, which obviously is killing 9,000 people a year in London and is particularly affecting the poorest communities and um, ethnic minorities communities in London. Um, and so we were trying to get Sadiq Khan to um, move on this issue faster than he was willing to move. And so and we were using nonviolent civil disobedience as our method. So that was kind of a training um, campaign for what ended up turning into Extinction Rebellion, which was, we said like, okay, it's great that we've done these small campaigns as rising up on issues like air pollution or airport expansion or um, universities' investment in fossil fuels, but how can we um, create a movement about the whole picture? Like, how can we stop the ecological collapse that the world is currently experiencing? How can we um, stop runaway climate change? Um, which is heading us towards um, extinction of all lives, um, including human beings. And so Extinction Rebellion was born and I got involved in um, mostly organizing creative um, actions around this. Yeah. Fascinating. And when you're talking about creative actions, I know that last year um, I witnessed, it was extraordinary actually, and I found it very inspiring, um, a massive swarming event across five of London's most busy bridges. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came with this idea of swarming and, and what that looks like and what it means to come up with creative acts of civil disobedience? Yeah, so it's really key for us that this movement is about non-violent civil disobedience. It's about people reclaiming the power that they have really over a system. Like if many people come together, just like we saw on um, November 17th when we blocked five bridges in central London, um, just with their bodies, um, not using kind of fancy direct action skills, like not going to, back to the roots of what we've seen in the environmental movement over the last 20 years, which is groups of small, highly skilled people taking direct action against a specific site. This is about saying um, we're a mass who are willing now to take um, small scale acts of civil disobedience in the street and risk, risk arrest because what we're in now is an emergency that's going to affect all of us. And it's the government and the system that need to really change and respond to that. And so we decided as we grew, actually a week, a week before we took those bridges, um, we were taking action at the Department for Energy and and a much smaller number of people, say about 100 people, came and took action. And we shut down that building using superglue and people <laughs> superglued their hands to the entrances. Yeah. And so we shut down the Department for Energy for six hours. And as those actions got more and more press, the amount of people that were going to come for the Saturday grew and grew. And so we gradually realized we have enough people that we don't just take like one road or one space like Parliament Square. Let's take like five bridges um, in central London and really shut down central London and show like how how much um, power and energy there is for for this movement now. It kind of reminds me a little bit of um, 
of the suffragette movement, actually. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about while researching this interview with you was uh, the mass arrest that happened back in 1961 with the British anti-war group, the Committee of 100, which was uh, mm-hmm. including signatories such as Bertrand Russell and Ralph Sherman and Michael Scott, among others. And prior to this group, as far as I can tell, civil disobedience on this kind of scale and what Extinction Rebellion is, is doing is on a much grander scale. But stuff at this scale was virtually unknown in the UK. To what extent do you think this approach is helping to achieve your aims and maybe publicise um, an issue that many many of us find too painful to look at? Yeah, I think what we've seen is that a lot of people have been concerned about climate change and concerned about extinction for a long time, but they haven't known necessarily how to get involved themselves. They've seen kind of some of the bigger NGO groups who are like putting forward these more like um, skilled, um, highly skilled activists to go off and go on a boat to an oil well somewhere, you know, and shut that down, which is amazing. And we love that those people have those people have kept this issue in the centre, but it hasn't given access for um, a wider range of people to feel powerful and feel involved in something. And mm-hmm. so um, I think, yeah, a similarity to the suffragettes might be the fact that art and creativity have been so central to our actions. We've really thought about how we, um, what words we use on our placards to make sure that this is beyond politics. This is um, including everyone. And this is really something that um, everyone can get involved in and be part of. And and we've said, like, anyone can come and sit on a road um, in central London and be part of taking that civil disobedience. This is building on on this on the last hundred years, really, of like nonviolent civil disobedience that we've seen across the world, and seen that actually those movements have the power to change change things. And change has always come through people kind of breaking the law. When we've seen that the law is upholding a system that is failing us. Mm. And, and when you're talking about these changes in political and economic systems, and I know that people have written about this, so for instance, George Monbiot is quite outspoken about the changes that need to happen. With the Rising Up website, you can actually find some really interesting content around this, including a draft manifesto for economic justice that offers examples of policies that could enable the kind of political and economic change that we need. I'm curious, are there any specific ones that you think would be specifically effective to the UK and some that might be more general to other countries in the world? Because this is now a global movement. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, the amazing thing is where when you give people this power and they see, like, that they can actually be involved and they can have um, a voice within this movement um, and they, they get together and they've been forming groups all across the UK. We've got over 90 groups now across the UK and since that first action, public action at the end of October, um, our movement's kind of expanded from about 3,000 people on Facebook to now like 50,000 people with groups in um, 25 countries and people kind of running with this and doing their actions all over the world. But I think a key thing of what Extinction Rebellion is doing is saying it's what we're here to, to to highlight the problem and say that this is an emergency now and that we need action now. But it's really up for the government and the systems um, to change and solve that issue. And we're putting forward our, our demand is for the creation of a citizens assembly um, who decide on on what system we should change to to solve this problem in a more democratic way. It's not really up to us as a as a small underfunded group of activists um, to tell people 
exactly which method to do. We know that there's lots of methods out there. We know that scientists have the research on this, that there's economists that have done amazing work on this, and they would advise a citizen assembly, and then it would be up to citizen assembly in a more truly democratic way that isn't um, blinded by party politics that could really come up with a solution to this um, in response to this emergency situation. Mm. So it sounds like what you're, you're discussing is basically galvanising people to create a situation in which a citizens' assembly can bring in various different kinds of people with knowledge in these areas to inform what potential systems could look like going into the future. So to really create something that's much more democratic and perhaps a little less hierarchical, is, is that kind of, would you, would you suggest that's the sort of thing we're aiming for here? Yeah, exactly. You can, yeah, there's, you can look up also on our website, there's things about selectarianism, which is the method that we're proposing to get bypass party politics and make the citizens assembly much more democratic. Um, and yeah, the idea is that um, all of these groups and people that are coming out and saying, this is an emergency situation, I'm willing to put my body on the line and say I'm willing to get arrested because that's the that's um, where where we're at now with the climate and the ecological breakdown. That's actually raising awareness and putting the issue into the public sphere. And then we're t- really telling the media and the government to tell the truth on this issue um, so that more people are aware of this and, and know what's going on. Mm. And why do you think that the government in the UK especially has been so reluctant to speak up about the risks that we face in the face of all this evidence? Um, and also to talk about the actions that we might need to take in order to change our current trajectory. Well, I think um, there's there's the whole party politics issue of the that people are so focused on this getting re-elected and um, focused on internal party politics um, that they don't really have the the room to look at the bigger issue of climate change because that would require kind of putting in place some serious. Um, steps that would go past kind of the election cycle and would actually like look at improving the society for everyone um, in a serious way. And there's also obviously the revolving door system and the fossil fuel lobbies um, and lots of um, ways that the current system is, is so easily kind of held by kind of corruption and by the huge capitalist industries that that um, are just functioning in the interest of of um, creating more wealth rather than actually creating a better society for everyone. I mean, their current functionings aren't, aren't even beneficial to the the people that work in those industries, and definitely not to their children or grandchildren who are going to have to live with the consequences of runaway climate change. I'm thinking also with this is that this this idea of short-termism, which we seem to have just really bought into, and that more is more, this idea of productivity and generating wealth, uh, it just doesn't seem compatible with a world in which we're trying to live more sustainably or suggest systems that enable us to get greater balance with our our environments. Do you personally feel that there are specific countries that are getting this balance a bit better that we could maybe look to for potential ways of addressing these issues? I don't think anywhere has really solved this problem yet. Mm. So we're currently facing like one of the biggest problems humanity's ever faced. And somehow we're like overwhelmed by this or or we're kind of like ignoring it or denying it or we're kind of going around in kind of the standard political systems that we've been using for a long time and not kind of coming up with new ways 
and creative ways to solve this crisis. This is a new situation that we haven't faced before. And so we're going to need a new kind of politics and a new kind of system to solve it, I think. Do you think people will be able to galvanise quickly enough to create new systems? Because obviously we're talking systemic change, it's very, these things tend to be quite slow and complex and people have vested interests. Yeah, I mean, I think we we always think that, that yeah, change is this really slow um, thing. But I mean, the reason that we're using nonviolent civil disobedience and we're create, trying to create a mass movement and not a small group of people working on this is because we've seen in the past that um, mass nonviolent movements have managed to change things. And mm. as I was saying before, like, I think a lot of people have been waiting for something to join around this and some, and that creative um, identity that Extinction Rebellion has um, made has allowed a lot of people to feel part of something and they've joined quickly. And we're seeing the same with the school strikes that have now mobilized just a few days ago, over a, a million people around the world on every continent. Um, and that's a movement that's been led by young people and is, and is seeing um, the youth really show that they care about their future and, and they are listening and they're, they're awake and they actually have got ideas around what to do with this. We've seen the Sunrise Movement in the United States um, galvanize a whole load of people from uh, around the Green New Deal there. And of course, we've seen like lots of people in the global south and, and indigenous communities who've been focusing on this issue for many years who are mobilizing as well. So do you think that we've hopefully optimistically reached enough of a tipping point where people feel that there are not only realistic ways to enact their, their concerns? So with, for instance, swarmings or the, the school rallies. Do you think we've reached enough of a tipping point to get enough people out on the streets taking direct action for it to create the shift that we need? I think we still need to grow. I think, I think it can get bigger. And I think it needs to be mm. inclusive of a whole, whole diverse range of people and really representative of the, of the population in terms of like really reaching out to um, working class people in this country, to um, ethnic minorities in this country, um, and make sure that this movement is, in, is inclusive and really representative of the population. And, and that, will, um, that will really make it grow much bigger and also give it much more power in terms of saying this is actually what this population is asking for right now. Do you think channels such as the BBC and other news channels, their reluctance to televise this is contributing to the problem? Do you think that people have to find alternative ways to get the word out, like social channels and more left-leaning um, routes? Um, well, no, I think this, I think this um, problem affects everyone, and I think it's really important that we don't um, keep this within like a left-wing bubble and we don't keep this within an eco-bubble. Mm. I think the language that Extinction Rebellion is using is purposefully um, not kind of environmentalist or leftist it's it's messaging to everyone and i think we need to be talking to all the media i mean we had a press conference here a few weeks ago and it um as well as the guardian being there the daily mail and the times were there and i think it's really important that the bbc um and all media do start telling the truth on this issue because it's going to affect everyone it doesn't matter whether what your politics are or what your business is um or what kind of job you have, this is going to affect you and your kids. And if we don't change what we're doing within the next kind of five to 10 years, this is going to have serious impact on all of our futures. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, just, it's just as much a right-wing issue to care about um, the future of your family and your, and, your, and your country. It's very much a human issue as opposed to a political one in, in a sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it's political because that's how the change is going to be affected. But in terms of who it impacts, it's all of us. So Extinction Rebellion also has a very clear set of 10 principles and values that they espouse. Um, can you talk us through some of them? So, yeah, we have um, Extinction Rebellion have this um, set of 10 principles and values. And this is kind of what everyone who comes and works for us is kind of asked to sign up for, because obviously we're a decentralized movement that's growing really fast. And so there needs to be some kind of core values that people across the movement, whether they're working up in Glasgow or whether they're working in New York City or um, all kind of follow these principles. And so um, they are that. Number one, that we have a shared vision of change, and that's creating a world that's um, fit for generations to come. And number two is we set out um, our mission on what is necessary, which is to mobilize 3.5% of the population to achieve that system change and uh, using ideas such as a momentum-driven organizing um, system to achieve that. Number three is that we need a regenerative culture. So this is creating a culture that is healthy, resilient, and adaptable. So the whole point of Extinction Rebellion is that on the 31st of October, we declared a rebellion against the government. We didn't just have a march through London and then go home again. We actually said that we're going to keep um, acting and creating disruption and growing as a movement who want to see this change until they meet with us on a demand. And so by having this be a rebellion, by having over the next month, about 10 actions happen in central London, which was a huge undertaking. We have to have a regenerative culture which lets people rest and recover and learn from their mistakes and then move forward and rebuild. And so that involves thinking about people's well-being, thinking about supporting them through the court system if they do go, go through that, and um, thinking about across everything we do, really building in a culture which is healthy and regenerative. And mm. we also avoid kind of blaming people and calling people out in public spaces and we try and like resolve things through conflict resolution and one-on-one discussions Mm. um so number four is we openly challenge ourselves and the toxic system so um leaving our comfort zones to take action for change what we're seeing and i don't know if you're aware we just had this massive festival in bristol where we were training and learning from each other and so it was really interesting to hear um I heard this particularly from a a group of women in a workshop I was running that Extinction Rebellion has given them kind of permission to like step outside their comfort zones and do things they might not do, for example, like speak in a speak in a public um, situation, like giving the extinction talk to a room of 50 people or to go and sit in the middle of a road and kind of take action with their bodies or speak on a megaphone. Yeah, I think Extinction Rebellion has really given people the opportunities to try new things and to step outside their comfort zone because we're saying this is an emergency situation and it requires this yes. new response and it requires all of us to kind of be almost bigger than ourselves, be part of this movement um, and do amazing things. Mm. So number five is we value reflecting and learning, following a cycle of action, reflection, learning and planning for more action. So this is what I was saying about this fits in with our regenerative culture is that we always, after an action, have a debrief where we can discuss what went well and what needs improving. And we learn from other movements and contexts as well as our own experiences as we do that and build 
on what we've learned and improve it. And I imagine that as that becomes um, something which more and more people from different parts of the world and different cultures experience, then that creates a richer uh, set of insights and tools for people to bring into the future actions that they might take. Yeah, exactly. And we've got an international team that's helping with all of the groups that are forming across the world. And then we also have an international solidarity team now, which is actually like reaching out to other movements that aren't Extinction Rebellion, but are kind of in line with us that are happening elsewhere in the world and work out how we can support them and work with them. So really creating a network of of fellow-minded movements. Exactly. Mm. So number six is we welcome everyone and every part of everyone working actively to create safer and more accessible spaces which I think speaks for itself. (laughs) And number seven is we actively mitigate for power, breaking down hierarchies of power for more equitable participation. And we kind of use something that's based on a kind of holocratic system, which is basically offering people as they form groups to work on things, working groups, or as they form local groups, giving those groups autonomy to plan and act and and go on the basis of what they want to do and the skills that they have and, and move rather than having everything have to come from a central kind of location. We've seen already that Glasgow organized, for example, this blue wave around sea level rising, whereas in London on this on this same weekend, they organized um, an action around blood of our children and pouring red paint. And so um, we're working to like a similar schedule of when we want to have some kind of big action, but as their local group, they had the autonomy and power to work out what works for where they are. And I'm curious with that then, because obviously there needs to be some kind of direction and um, consistency in terms of people engaging in actions that are coherent with the, the values that you've espoused. So how, how does that play into it? How do people... Um, do people get signed off on specific actions? How do you align timelines? Like from that organizational perspective, how does it work? Yeah, so we have these 10 principles and values that I'm just going through, which are really useful. And then we also have our three demands. And so things that are in line with that are great and basically can go ahead. But um, we have national working groups within the UK I can talk about are Um, working on things like the regenerative culture or the outreach um, and training and doing the kind of media messaging. And so people from all across the UK are part of those those working groups. And so they can kind of share information Mm -hmm. and work out what's happening that way. And then also, since we've kind of expanded bigger and bigger, we now have three movement um, strategy teams um, that are focused on movement, political and actions. And so those strategy teams are kind of holding parts of Extinction Rebellion and developing the kind of strategies that which they then publish and put out to people t- who can choose to like sign up to parts of it or the whole thing or invent their own version of it for where they are. Wow, it sounds super complex and very... Um... Yeah, exciting. It's a totally different model. So, okay, so I've taken us on a detour. So you're talking about point seven, which is actively mitigating for power. Um, value number eight. So, yeah, number eight is we avoid blaming and shaming. We live in a toxic system, but no one individual is to blame. So I think this is really, again, comes back to this. is like beyond politics. This is a human issue. And I think Extinction Rebellion is dealing with this in a really human way. So this is like within ourselves, like I said, we're not 
um, calling people out in public space. We're really trying to solve um, relationships and issues in a one-on-one -on -one way that, that makes it a safer space for everyone to kind of put themselves out there. And we know that everyone makes mistakes and mistakes are part of trying to build something completely new. And so kind of having an understanding of that. But it also goes wider to the fact that like this isn't about kind of targeting like one individual corporation or one individual politician. We know that this is a systematic problem that needs the whole system to change. And so by focusing on the government and, and having these three demands for the government as a whole, I think that changes that traditional um, trap of a lot of activism that can fall into just blaming or calling out. Mm. If we get rid of um, one politician, they're going to be replaced by someone else and, and they're going to probably still have lobbying groups go after them and try and get their ear to, to fund like fossil fuel products or fracking, etc. And so we know this isn't about like just removing one individual ever. This is about changing the whole system. So we are a nonviolent network using nonviolent strategy and tactics as the most effective way to bring about change. And that's number nine. Yeah. And so this is this is based on a whole load of research that's been done over time around what works in terms of change. And I think one one of the statistics is that um, nonviolent movements for change have been successful when they've managed to have a change of heart in the public. It's in particular a change of heart in the security services or the police or the army. Mm. Um, whereas violent movements that have managed to create change have relied on kind of external states or actors providing them with more and more weapons. And that's just really obvious to me why it makes so much more sense to go down the route of nonviolent change um, and working out how we can get people to care about this because people do care about their future and their children's future mm -hmm. rather than going down the route of like more violence which has already caused a lot of climate change that we've seen. We know that the US military is one of the biggest if not the biggest carbon emitter in the world. Really? And has managed to exclude themselves from the Paris Climate Agreement. Really? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I mean how? <laughs> <laughs> They're the US military. <laughs> but what is it that they're contributing, uh, that how are they contributing in such an epic way to the CO2 emissions? The machinery, the equipment, the vehicles mm. that they use, the mass global scale of movement of people and movement of that equipment. War is just a very wasteful, wasteful thing. <laughs> it is extraordinary. I wonder, while we're on this point nine about being a non-violent network, I wonder what the reception has been like when, for instance, for the swarming on the bridges or other peaceful physical resistances, when police have encountered um, bodies of people, what, what's the response been like there in terms of the dynamic between the police and the protesters or the activists? Yeah, I mean, so we've been like very clear with the police, actually telling them in person, like, we are this nonviolent movement, we're going to be respectful and we're also going to stand up for our actions. Um, so if we do do something criminal, we'll stay there and um, expect to be arrested for it. So when people have like spray painted government buildings, they've kind of sat there and waited for the police to come and be arrested. And I think that kind of wow. calms them down and changes how they're responding to the situation. Because if they know that we're nonviolent and they know that we're going to be respectful and wait to be arrested, they don't have that kind of rush to control the situation in a violent way. Obviously, at some point, the state or the powers that be could feel threatened enough that this they do kind of shift to some kind of 
violent repression of this, but we haven't seen that at all. We've actually seen the police be very respectful of us, a lot of them obviously understanding the issue of climate change and caring about it themselves. And they've responded to us in a very generally respectful way, arresting people and using the correct procedures to do that. Mm. Has anyone actually been imprisoned for longer than a couple of days while, while people have been accused of breaking the law? Or has it generally been you go in and then you're let out? Yeah, so the, when you're arrested, the police in the UK can only keep you for up to 24 hours. Mm. And so people have been released and then some of them have been released without any charge. Some of them have been released pending investigation and some have been taken to court now. And some people are in the middle of those court cases trying to see what they'll be charged with. Um, it doesn't look at the moment like anyone's has been put in prison. Previous Rising Up campaigns have seen people put in prison for small-scale civil disobedience. Wow. But because we've been so public as a movement about that we are willing to risk arrest and that that's part of our tactic, the police have actually been very hands-off and very slow to arrest people unless they really have to. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I wonder also, you're describing here a really interesting psychological framework for diffusing potential aggression in the police, for setting the tone, for making sure that you know that there's consequence to action. How much do you think that psychological context is contributing to the effectiveness of the actions? Yeah, I think I think it has a big effect. If you're there saying that we're going to be respect, respectful and um, non-violent, I think their issue and their concern is obviously public safety. And if they think that there's going to be some kind of violent riot, they have to respond to that and, and police that in a very different way to if they know that people are going to sit down mm. on a bridge um, and wait to be arrested. And that's that's a very non-violent situation. It's very hard to come up behind someone who's sitting down, facing away from you and batting them over the head. Yeah. That just goes against a lot of like human training. And obviously the police are trained to... like be able to violently repress people if they need to. And we're not saying, we're not kind of casting a moral judgment on the police. We actually are aware, obviously, that the police are structurally racist and there's a lot of problematics in this in their structure. But what we're trying to do is is develop a tactic that is going to, that is going to work to shift both how people participate in a mass movement and also how the police police it. Mm. And so this is about, yeah, how do we, how do we shift that that kind of tone and that relationship yes. and have it work so that this can grow to be a mass movement that can can create that change. And so let's go to the, your, your tenth and final point, um, the tenth and final value. Okay, so that is that we're based on autonomy and decentralisation. Um, so we collectively create the structures we need to challenge power and anyone who follows these core principles and values can take up action in the name of Extinction Rebellion. And so I think I've kind of mentioned that throughout Mm. them, but basically, again, coming back to this human approach, for six months before we actually did any actions as Extinction Rebellion, we went around the country and gave over 60 talks um, to people in town halls and in churches and at festivals and in universities and got a whole range of people to really undertake in a room, not just on their computer, what it means to be facing another mass extinction and and how we can move through that. And so from that, people then signed up to help out either by taking action or by getting involved in a working group. And they were kind of called up at this point on the phone and talked through like how they could help the campaign in a very human way and personal way. And they can be put in touch with a group. And, and that group then had the autonomy to go and work on 
media and messaging or to go and work on art and creative actions or to go and work on outreaching and training more people mm. and so those those people had that power to go and now we've since that first action we've gone from that kind of very like linear mm. gradual growth to like this explosion of action and people just kind of taking up and forming groups where they are and finding the information mm. through our kind of online networks. What would you say is your biggest concern for the future given the momentum that this is already having that there is some kind of change that's happening that's for the positive um, notwithstanding that what's your biggest concern? So I'm, I'm massively concerned, obviously, that w that we might be too late, that we might not be able to change the system and that we might like continue into a, a bigger and bigger climate and ecological collapse. And we're already seeing species dying. We're already seeing people lose their homes and their lives due to climate change around the world. And it, as that grows, I have a massive concern for how we will cope with that and how our societies will cope with that and potentially see the increase of like war and all sorts of of negative things and so that is a massive concern for me and I think that's why as part of um, Extinction Rebellion we're not only just forming these groups that can take radical action together but we're actually forming new ways of people like learning to work with each other across different politics and across different countries and communities and and working how like people can actually like work together. So I hope that that is also starting to build resilience for a potentially troubled time ahead mm. due to climate change. Mm. Yeah. And if you're going to in a in a few lines, it's not very fair. But if you're, in a few lines, you're going to say what vision you're working towards achieving with the best possible outcome. What would that be? So I think that we're working towards setting up a new system that can that can really care about all life and really stop the destruction of the environment and um, stop the runaway climate change that we're seeing. And I think that will involve um, a real change, a massive shift in our system and how we're functioning as a society right now. And finally, what single action do you think we can take today as individuals to build a more resilient future? So as individuals is the hard part there. I think I think we need mass collective action. And I think um, Extinction Rebellion is saying that nonviolent, mass nonviolent civil disobedience is the way to go. So I think find people around you who are willing to do something a bit naughty and go out and see, see how you can change the system. See if you can get your school or your industry or your local government to declare a climate emergency and to join the Extinction Rebellion. Okay. And if they want to find out more, where's the best place to find out more about Extinction Rebellion? Um, so rebellion.earth is our website. You can find mm -hmm. hundreds of events all the time. Um, so I suggest going to a talk or a training that's happening near you and getting involved in a local group and finding out more there. Great. And then you can also get in touch with you on Twitter at Extinction R and also on Instagram. But you're going to have to remind me what the label is. I think it's Extinction Rebellion on Instagram, but I will just check that. <laughs> I'll include these all in the show notes. And uh, is there anything else that you want to point people towards as a resource or are you happy with the links that we've got? Um, I think the links you've got should be great. Well, Liam, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. I hope it was useful.
Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Thank you.